In a recent tweet from indie filmmaker Noam Kroll, which I've shared down in the description, he posted 19 decisions that had allowed him to make his latest micro-budget movie, right? So a feature film made for roughly $6,000 and how he was able to do that. And I want to share this because I think we all benefit from this. And certainly a, a lot of these things, you know, I've utilized already other stuff. I just necessarily haven't had a chance to. And also some of it I didn't even think of, right? So I just kind of want to go down the list and add some commentary about it and how you can think about utilizing it for yourself in your movies. So number one, turning our smaller scope into an asset. Yeah, you know, this is very key for any micro budget film. And, you know, I always like to say it, instead of looking at what you don't have, really start thinking about what you do have, right? Because more than not, we actually have so much. We're just blinded by focusing on, oh, I don't, I don't have, you know, this camera. I don't have, I don't have this location. I don't have like, but when, once we actually take stock of what we do have, you know, it's almost like keeping a gratitude journal. Like if you can keep gratitude journal, like all of a sudden you'll be like, oh wow, my life is actually pretty amazing. So as filmmakers, this is like that almost gratitude practices to take stock of what you do have, right? Number two, adopting a documentarian mindset. So this resonates with me because, you know, for me, I shoot very fast and I want the actors themselves to have a lot of the control. And I remember saying like, you know, where's my marks and stuff like that. I was like, no, no, no. It's my job as the filmmaker to, to capture you in the best way. You, you know... Yes, I gave them the direction of like, you know, what the scene's about, what I want them to do overall, but like nothing as specific as like marks to hit and so forth. It was, you know, you do you and my job is to film it. And for me, part of that has always been running multiple cameras so that way we are essentially speeding through it and capturing the energy rather than wearing the actors out, you know? So, and I'm sure there's other interpretations for this, but, um, you know, that's how I perceive it. So that was number two, adopting a documentarian mindset. Number three, using only gear I already owned. I think this is very key. Again, we, we over conflate that we need X, Y, and Z to make it. No, I mean, there's been movies released in theaters shot on iPhones that weren't even as good as the ones today that are available, right? And so it's all about how you utilize it, right? And a story well-made, well-told, well-acted, and so forth, A, is forgivable in terms of its production quality, but there's ways to make it work, should you want, you know? And so, yeah, don't, don't fret over all that stuff. Like, God, it's one of my biggest pet peeves I remember in film school. Like, people spent more time talking about the camera that they wanted to use Versus like, what story are you even filming, right? So forget that. Just use what you got. Number four, relying entirely on natural and available light. Boy, this is something that I utilize too, right? You know, putting up lights and setting up all that stuff takes a long time. It slows things down. 
And going back to that idea of being a documentarian, right? You know, utilize those environments. Like for me, when we made, you know, a Bogota trip, um, which was filmed in Colombia, we used, you know, pre-existing places so we didn't have to dress the set and so forth. And by doing that way, you know, it, it also allowed us to make it feel very hyper-realistic. And part of that was using only the light we had, right? So it's a big asset. This is one that's interesting, using one 50 millimeter lens for the entire movie. So, you know, it's creative restriction and certainly, um, you know, you can, you know, use it or not. I think it's up to you. Um, 50 millimeters, depending on like, yeah, kind of like if you're close to a person, we'll give you a kind of a medium shot, um, depending on the spacing. So to get a wide shot, you have to go a little bit further out and stuff like that. So it puts you right there, generally more with the characters. And that could be an asset, right? So it's, it all just depends on you. And for me, a lot of my stories, you know, in both movies that I've made tend to be those like medium to wides and then mediums. I don't really do many, many close-ups. I don't generally do many wides. Um, I didn't just use a 50 millimeter lens, but certainly that, that allows you to not have to change out the lens all the time either. So there's speed in that. So, you know, again, it depends on you. Um, for me, I have a zoom lens. I understand zoom lenses aren't as beneficial as prime lenses in terms of their quality, but what I get in terms of the benefit of swapping out shots and, and so forth really quickly is, uh, is more beneficial to me. Number six, locking focus whenever possible. So this is an interesting one too, you know, um, and certainly, yeah, the, I think the key part is whenever possible. So in a lot of my movies, there tends to be, I, tr I like to have a freneticism, so there's a lot of movement. It's also why I don't do many close-ups because if there's a lot of movement and you're that tight, you have to really ride that focus well to be able to pull it off. Um, whereas less so, you know, the further out you go. So yeah, you know, I, it's something that I agree. Um, and just kind of clarifying of how I approach that. Uh, shooting, tri shooting tripods indoors, handheld outdoors. So that's an interesting one, yeah, and, and, and I agree with it because inside you have a little bit more control, let's say, than, than perhaps outdoor. Um, for me, I generally shoot, with, with the past two movies, I've shot everything handheld because again, I'm going for that documentarian freneticism feel and there's always a lot of movements and I need to move with the actors so locking it in with a tripod wouldn't have worked for me. But, you know, that's a decision that worked for their movie. It's a movie which, by the way, I haven't yet seen because it's not fully completed. But, you know, if it worked for them, great, right? Like, that's the beautiful part about all of this. Like, there's no 
hard and fast rules. Like ultimately the right way to make a project is the way that works for you and achieves what you want in, in a non way that like in a non toxic work environment sort of way. Right. I always give that sort of caveat. Number eight, prioritizing mic placement and tr triangle mounting. So yeah, I think having good audio is, is always key. You know, for me, I've utilized lobs for the sound that I've gotten and certainly, you know, there's ways to improve it and stuff like that. But, you know, having, having a boom operator just wasn't feasible for me. And so, you know, I utilized mics in that way and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, um, there you go. Recording uh, number nine, recording wild lines and effects after every take. So, yeah, I think that's important um, because you're in that rhythm, right? I, I, I did a lesson about this. Like, I think, you know, I do essentially onset ADR, right? So, we'll, meaning we'll, we'll do the scene and then after filming the scene for visual purposes, we'll do just an audio-only take because A, it'll be a lot easier to match the quality of the sound from from the set versus ADR. And they're already in that natural rhythm. So most times like it's gonna be very close. And now with today's tools, you can adjust it very easily. And yeah, having the effects there, again, same thing. You know, you're already on the set, so why not why not get all that stuff? So, you know, especially for distribution, to have an international release, most times like, you know, people want just a separate full MNE. So MNE stands for music and effects, meaning the movie from start to finish without the dialogue. And if the dialogue is baked in with certain sound effects, like, you know, slamming of a can or something like that, uh, you know, that doesn't cost, you need that to be also in your effects track, right? That, that slamming of the can. And so it's a lot easier to do sound design and also have that fully fleshed out M&E if you have those sounds separate, not baked in with the dialogue. And this is a great way to, to, to go about it. Number 10, choosing locations with built-in production value. So I actually made mention of this, right? So when we went to Columbia, we used real places, right? We weren't building sets and so forth. And yeah, so using pre-existing things and, and going back to the idea of like having a documentarian feel, like in general for me, I like to have a 360 set, right? Meaning I can shoot any which way that I want. And, you know, working with real locations, not only do they have that production value, but you can go any which way and it, and it doesn't limit you. So 100% locations are very important. Um, number 11, filming sequentially for smooth continuity. So I, you know, I agree with that if possible, right? So for me, <laughs> with both movies, it very much wasn't, was not possible, but if you can do it, you know, kudos to you and they were able to do that. So, you know, fantastic. Workshopping scenes with the actors before shooting hundred percent, you know, as far as my second movie, we rehearsed for months. We did uh, about 12 separate re rehearsals with all the actors. So that way when we got there to Columbia, we knew what we were doing. Sure, like now we're gonna be in a fully 
realized environment, but, you know, uh, and that could elevate it, but we weren't like grasping for straws and figuring it out. Like we were building off of something versus starting from scratch. So 100%. Number 13, rolling virtually nonstop on shoot days. You know, for me, I'm kind of give and take on this one only because, you know, with film formats nowadays, like they just take up so much hard drive space that I try to avoid it. However, I also do understand it because sometimes, you know, there's been many, many stories of just even like Oscar winning films where an editor will say, you know, we, we cheated a moment. You know, there was like a couple couple frames before, you know, the take started where the actor is rolling their eyes and that was the reaction we needed for the scene. So we stole that moment, right? So that's kind of what it's hinting at. But yeah, for me, I'm kind of a little bit give and take on that just because, you know, while we're not filming with actual celluloid film, the hard drive space today, man, whoo, yeah, it takes up a lot. So, you know, that just... There you go. That's my ideology on it. Number 14, avoid back-to-back shooting days. You know, that's an interesting one. Actually, in an ideal world, yeah, I would prefer not to have to like grind out, you know, a month schedule. And and sure, even in professional movies, you know, you get like a day off and stuff like that. Um, But it is a damn grind. And the ability that you have as a filmmaker just to kind of step away from it and so forth. Like, I actually think it's a great asset. And with my next movie that that I'm doing, um, just the way it's structured, yeah, allows us to not have to go, you know, back to back to back. And we can, you know, do it over the course of, you know, weekends and things like that. And that to me is better because then you get to kind of regroup, rethink, recalibrate and so forth. Uh, number 15, using green screens for driving shots. So I don't tend to have a lot of driving shots. And the stuff that I've done, I've actually like been in the cars and, and filmed within the cars. So, you know, I've not utilized this technique, but I, but I understand it, right? It's certainly a lot easier to film than, than the ways that I've done it. Um, but it's worked for me. And again, generally I try to avoid driving shots, but you know, moving forward, probably I should consider that for myself too. Uh, number 16, shooting day for night when needed. So this is something that I generally avoid, you know, again, it's part of my like documentarian mindset and filming in live locations, right? Like if it's supposed to take place at night, there's different vibrancy to it at night just with the people the way it looks and so forth and I want to capture it as is so I'm curious to see their result again plenty of people you know even in the indie film to all studio productions they utilize day for night <coughs> I just prefer to have it be as real as possible but um, but yeah so that's that was 16 uh, 17 skipping playback on set and this could be a little bit controversial to some people, sure, but I, I agree with it because, you know, the, for me, at least, like, I shoot, I shoot my movies myself, you know, as I mentioned, I run two cameras, but the people I work with, 
we work out, you know, same way that the actors, I work with the actors ahead of time to rehearse them. I work with the, with, you know, whoever I'm working with camera and we talk about the shots that we want and we get into a rhythm. And, you know, like I remember on Bogota, second day in, like me and Jonathan Moulton had like this natural rhythm. We already knew each other, right? And we had a rhythm to how the scenes, you know, in terms of the shots and so forth. And so, you know, I trusted him to get the shot. Like if he would say, hey, we need to do it again for camera, I believed him. And when he said we got it, I believed him, right? And so it, it really sped up the process by having to avoid watching playback. Um, <clears throat> number 18, bring enough media to avoid transfers. So I agree with that, right? So, you know, for me, I always looked at it on each of the SD cards we were using for Bogota, we are going to get 67 minutes worth of footage. So what I had kind of budgeted for ourselves was five cards per camera. So we were running two cameras, so each, so a total of 10 cards to be able to utilize. So that's about, you know, about over five minutes per camera. Also, why I don't shoot um, everything because I wanted to avoid uh, running out of cards. But that, that was more than enough for me. So we never had to like slow down and be like, okay, we got to transfer this and wait. Because a transfer, especially of that size, you know, the 67 minutes for us ended up being about 256 gigs, which depending on your computer and, you know, uh, the hard drive you're using, you know, it could still be like 20, 25 minutes, give or take, uh, of transfer time per card. And so you want to obviously avoid that downtime. And so what we did was we shot the day, you know, utilizing these cards. Then at the end of the night, you know, that's when things got put on hard drives, backed up and so forth. Then the next day the cards could be reformatted and used. So, and number 19, enjoy the unique process. You know, I think that's what this is all speaking to. There's no right way to go about making a movie. It's whatever way that works for you to get it done in a non-toxic way. So, you know, utilize these if they help. Create your own sort of, you know, guiding principles, if you will, and see how it goes for you. So thank you so much for taking time to tune in. Let me know your thoughts and opinions and also you know, which one of these you would like to utilize, which, you know, what are some other ideas that we all could benefit from that you've used or perhaps, you know, would love to use. Like, let's let's add on to this list, right? That'd be fun. So comment down below or hit me up on social media at Phil Speaker. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I'll see you next time.